Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, four persons, block radio fans. This is the Ken Apologetic Show your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing the Blessed Virgin Mary. If you have any questions on this topic, please feel free to call me at 515-602-9655. And if you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can email me at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's Catholic with a K. And the four persons is the, the number four, persons.com. If you'd like me to come speak at your parish about this or many and many other topics, you can email me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com. So let's get going with today's show on the Blessed Virgin Mary. First of all, Everything the Catholic Church teaches about Mary is because of what it teaches about Jesus. We revere Mary because she gave birth to Jesus, the Son of God, and the second person of the Trinity. Catholics only worship God as a Trinity, but we revere Mary above all the saints because of her special role in our salvation. Jesus came to save us through Mary. That's the key to understanding why we have such a great devotion to Mary and where Mary fits in in our salvation. Jesus saves us, but he came to save us through Mary. In Luke chapter 1, verse 28, Gabriel greets Mary with, Hail Mary, full of grace. This grace is translated from the Greek word karakatomene, which means to fill or endow with grace. It is in the perfect tense indicating that Mary was graced in the past, but with continued effects in the present, which points to her immaculate conception. The Proto-Evangelium of James tells the story of St. Joachim and Anne, Mary's parents, and a couple who struggled to conceive a child, similar to Sarah and Abraham. Joachim went into the desert, fasted and prayed, while Anne prayed in isolation at home. An angel appeared to Anne and said, The Lord has heard your prayer, and you shall conceive and bring forth and your seed shall be spoken of in all the world. The Proto-Evangelium of James also tells us that Anne made a sanctuary in Mary's room and allowed nothing unclean or common as she had a special holiness. They also had her blessed by the chief priests. 
They did not know exactly what God had in store for Mary, but they knew she needed to remain holy. Mary is often referred to as the new Eve, but a key difference between Eve and Mary is that Mary had been given earthly parents who guided and protected her. Mary had enmity with the serpent, was full of grace, and had a family commitment to remain to her remaining in a state of grace. Mary is the new Eve, who was born without sin because Paul tells Jesus or because Paul calls Jesus the new Adam, and we find that in first Corinthians chapter fifteen. Jesus only refers to Mary as woman in the New Testament. We find that in John chapter 2 and chapter 19, which tells us that she is the woman foretold in Genesis chapter 2, who was to crush the head of the serpent, the devil. Now, Mary crushes the head of the serpent, the devil, through Jesus, who came to crush the head of the devil through Mary. Mary defeats the devil by giving birth to Jesus, who defeats Satan. Justin Martyr writes about Mary as the new Eve in 150 AD, and Irenaeus of Lyon wrote about Mary as the new Eve in 180 AD. Justin and Irenaeus both learned about Christianity from the Apostle John's disciple, Polycarp. So this teaching comes from the Apostle John through Polycarp, to Justin and Irenaeus. It's not something that Justin and Irenaeus made up. And another thing to consider is that when they were teaching this at the time, Justin and Irenaeus and Polycarp, uh, there wasn't anybody disputing the idea. We don't have any writings that say that these guys were wrong, and we don't have any other church fathers saying that these guys were wrong. So we can have good confidence that what they were teaching was correct, and this is very early in Christianity. Mary was preserved from all sin by her son Jesus before her birth to be a suitable ark for the word made flesh. The original ark of the Old Testament was so holy that no one could touch it. The ark held the word of God in stone. Mary had the word of God made flesh in her womb. So it had to be at least as holy as the first ark. Mary was preserved from original and personal sin so that she could bring us the sinless Messiah, Jesus. So again, our teaching about Mary is based on our teaching about Jesus, not that we're trying to elevate Mary. We're just trying to recognize Jesus' awesome existence, both before his birth through Mary and after. Mary is the mother of God who gave birth to Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, who is God. Jesus pre-existed Mary as the Word of God. The Word of God became flesh through Mary. In Luke chapter 1, Elizabeth says, Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
Christians recognize that the Lord Elizabeth is referring to is Jesus. Jesus is God. Mary is the mother of Jesus, and therefore Mary is the mother of God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Mary gave birth to God through the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. If you separate Jesus' two natures, then you separate the Trinity. Many of our Protestant brothers and sisters have a hard time recognizing Mary as the mother of God. But to do that, they try to separate Jesus' human nature from his divine nature. But the early church councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon both confirm that is the the two natures of Jesus are fully connected and Mary is the mother of God. A writing from around 250 AD called the Subtum Parasidium is the earliest surviving written prayer to the Virgin Mary, identifying her as the mother of God. In Greek, she's known as the Theotokos, the God-bearer. And this is a prayer that comes to us from around 250 AD. We fly to your patronage, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our petitions in our necessities, but deliver us always from all dangers, O glorious and blessed Virgin. So again, this is a very early teaching in the Catholic Church, and there are no church fathers, you know, referring to this prayer as um, something heretical or not worthy of belief for Christians. The fact that Mary is the mother of God was later defined as a dogma in 431 AD at the Council of Ephesus. So this is like the Jewish roots of our understanding of Mary. In 1 Kings chapter 2, we have David's son, Solomon who has his mother Bathsheba as queen. Solomon's family would ask his mother Bathsheba to ask Solomon for favors. Jesus is the Messiah that would sit on the throne of David. His mother is the queen of heaven, as shown in Revelation chapter 12. Mary is an intercessor for Christians because she is the queen mother of the Messiah Jesus. Mary first intercedes for us with Jesus in John chapter 2, when she tells Jesus they have run out of wine at the wedding at Cana. Jesus performs his first miracle through the intercession of Mary when he makes more wine for the wedding feast. And if you read about that in John chapter 2, not only did Jesus make more wine, he made six jars of about 30 gallons each, and it was better wine than they had served earlier in the wedding. In Revelation chapter 12, we find a woman in heaven that gave birth to a man-child who was to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. The predicted Messiah was to rule with a rod of iron. The Messiah is Jesus, so the woman that bore him who is in heaven in Revelation chapter 12, must be Mary. 
Now, some Protestants will try to say that this woman in heaven is Israel, which is the nation that Mary is from. But in Revelation chapter 12, we have the devil, who's an individual, the serpent, and we have the Messiah, who rules with a rod of iron, which is Jesus, which is an individual. And we have the person that gives birth to the Messiah and is attacked by the devil. That person is Mary. It's not the whole nation of Israel. Some other Protestants try to make that the woman that gives birth to the Messiah as the new Eve, or as Eve. Mary is the new Eve because we recognize that she was born without sin, like the first Eve. And the first Eve fell, just like the first man, Adam, fell. But Jesus restored the first man, Adam, and Jesus restores the rest of us through the new Eve, which is Mary. Mary is honored as the mother of all Christians because Jesus gave her to the beloved disciple, John, at the foot of the cross. We find that in John chapter 19. John is referred to as a son and as a representative of all Christians, took Mary into his home. In Revelation chapter 12, the dragon cannot get to Mary and Jesus, so he went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those Christians who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. So that's how we know Mary is the mother of the whole church, because we are the ones that keep the commandments, and we are the one that the devil rages war against. Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant because Jesus is the Word made flesh, as shown in John chapter 1. The original Ark of the Covenant held the Word on the tablets of stone, later the scrolls of the five books of Moses. It also held Aaron's rod to symbolize authority, and it also held the miraculous manna bread given to the Israelites in the desert. The end of Revelation chapter 11, at the end of Revelation chapter 11, John is looking into heaven and he writes, God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, a woman clothed with the sun, etc., etc. Now, compare these parallels between 2 Samuel 6, chapter 6, verses 5 through 11, where it talks about David and the ark, and Luke chapter 1, verses 43, 44, and 56, which refers to Elizabeth and Mary. Here's the first comparison. David dances for joy in 2 Samuel 6, 5, and John leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb in Luke chapter 1, verse 44. David calls out, how can the Lord the ark of the Lord come to me in Second Samuel 6, 9. And Elizabeth calls out, why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me in Luke chapter 1, verse 43. 
Another comparison is the Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, a few miles outside of Jerusalem for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole house in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 11. Mary remained about three months with Elizabeth in Luke chapter 56, a few miles outside of Jerusalem. So this is another example of how the Catholic faith is built on the Old Testament, and our understanding of the New Testament is based on our understanding of the Old Testament. The perpetual virginity of Mary is easily shown in the Bible when Joseph and Mary lose Jesus when he stays behind in the temple at Jerusalem. Joseph and Mary don't have any other children to worry about when Jesus is 12 years old. At the foot of the cross in John chapter 19, Jesus gives Mary to John. In Jewish culture, the care of the mother passes to the eldest son after the father dies. Mary had no other sons, so Jesus gives her to John. In Luke chapter 1, engaged Mary asks how she will have a child. When the angel Gabriel tells her she will have a child since she knew where babies come from and did not have sex with a man. So Mary understands how babies come into the world, and when the angel Gabriel tells her that she is going to bear God a son, she wonders, how can this be, since she does not know man? Now, our Protestant brothers and sisters will often point to Mark chapter 6, which lists James and Joseph as brothers of Jesus. Yet, in Matthew chapter 27, it tells us that they have a different mother, Mary, the wife of Cephas. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is called the firstborn, but this does not mean Mary had other children because firstborn was a title for the Jews, denoting that son as the priest of the family after the father dies. So firstborn was kind of like a title given to the firstborn son, but that does not mean that there has to be other children after the firstborn. Some people think that the Jewish law required a marriage to be consummated to be made valid. There is another alternative in the book of Numbers, chapter 30, verse 3, where it says, or when a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But, if her father expresses disapproval to her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself, shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her 
because her father opposed her. And if she is married to a husband while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears it, then her vows shall stand, and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day that her husband comes to hear it, he expresses disapproval, then he shall make her vow void, which was on her, and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. It's important to understand that in Jewish culture, women, men were in covenant with God through circumcision. And women could not be circumcised, but they could be in covenant with God through their father and then later their husband, which is why it was very important for women to be attached to God through some man. Mary was originally attached to God in covenant with God through her father, whom she made a vow of virginity, and they preserved her. And when she came to be married to Joseph because her father had died, she had made that same vow, and Joseph approved of it because they all recognized that God had a greater plan for Mary. And we also know, of course, from Luke that Mary became with child before she was even married to Joseph. And the angel came to speak to Joseph to remind, to tell him that it was okay for him to marry Mary, even though she was already, because she was going to bear the Son of God. To understand Mary's vow of virginity, first we have to read the Proto-Evangelium or Infancy Gospel of James. This writing is not considered scripture, but was written in the second century, the 100s. So it offers information close to the time of Jesus. This writing tells us that Mary's parents are Joachim and Anne, as I referred to as earlier. This is a little more in-depth information. They had longed for a child for many years, and when Mary was born, she was dedicated to service in the temple. When Mary came of age and started menstruating, she could no longer serve for, in the temple. In Jewish culture, a woman is in covenant with God through her father or her husband, because women cannot be circumcised. Also, like all cultures up until the 1900s, women had no rights. Mary needed a husband to protect her and care for her since her parents had died. Joseph became her husband because he was a widower who had who was looking who was not looking for a wife to start a family with. Therefore, Mary was I'm sorry. Therefore, Joseph was able to maintain a Josephite, a celibate marriage, with Mary. This is why the brothers and sisters of Jesus could be considered Joseph's children from his first wife, or just close relatives, 
since Middle Eastern cultures have no word for cousin and consider them all brothers and sisters. It's important to note that uh, in the Bible that when people are referred to as Jesus' brothers and sisters, it was a common practice in the culture of the time to refer to close relatives as brothers and sisters since they didn't have a word for cousin. Now, of course, the Greek that was used to write the New Testament did have a word for for cousin, but because the New Testament writers wrote in Greek but used the Jewish um, understanding of words, they used the word brother and sister because they knew it meant cousin. Modern English speakers only see brother and sister, and a lot of people do not know, understand the Middle Eastern culture of the time. This is why it's important to understand the culture and the author of the Bible, not just the words that are written down. Protestants like to bring up the word until in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, which they like to assume means a change in state after that time point that is being referred to. They do this to connect the mention of brothers and sisters to Mary, of Mary and Jesus. They assume that there has to be a change, but this is not necessarily true. In 2 Samuel 6.23, it says, And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. However, we don't assume that she had children after she died. So here the word until does not mean that there was a change in state after that time of until. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, Paul tells us, For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Assume that Christ will stop reigning after he has conquered all his enemies. In Luke chapter 1, verse 33, it tells us, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So that confirms that Jesus will continue to reign after he has put all the enemies under his feet. Paul tells Timothy to continue preaching the gospel until I return. We find that in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 2 Timothy chapter 4. This does not mean that Timothy cannot preach the gospel after Paul arrives or after Paul departs. So Protestants read into the word of the word until uh, that there is a change afterward but there does not have to be a change afterward but since they have a hard time revering mary like we catholics and the orthodox do they have to degrade her by showing that mary had other children besides jesus and they have to look for verses that help support their new tradition. 
Mark chapter 6 lists James and Joseph as brothers of Jesus. Yet Matthew chapter 27 tells us that they have a different mother, Mary, the wife of Cephas. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is called the firstborn. But this does not mean that Mary had other children, because firstborn was a title for the Jews denoting this, that son that would be the priest in the household after the father died. The perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, let's see. Yep. Luke chapter 2, verse 23 tells us, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, as shown in Exodus chapter 13. In Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 2, it says, the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened and no one shall enter it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered it by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Mary is the gate through which Christ entered the world. No other person can enter that way. There's further support for Mary's perpetual virginity in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 1, verse 27, it says, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. In Luke chapter 1, verse 34, Mary says, And Mary said to the angel, How shall this be done, since I have no husband? In verse, Luke chapter 1, verse 45, it says, And blessed is he who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there, whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour on, the disciple took her into his home. Jewish culture at that time required the care of the mother to be passed on to the eldest son when the father dies. The care of Mary is passed on to John because Jesus had no other brothers to take care of Mary. In 200 AD, Hippolytus of Rome, who grew up in Smyrna and learned from Irenaeus, wrote that Mary was a perpetual virgin in his writing against Baron and Helix. In 222 AD, Tertullian, during a dispute with Marcion, who was a Gnostic, affirmed that Mary is the mother of Christ because Jesus was engendered by Mary in her womb. In 248 AD, Origen wrote the book, referring to the Proto-Evangelium of James, records that the brethren of Jesus were sons of Joseph by a former wife whom he married before Mary. Now, those who say so wish to preserve the honor of Mary in virginity, in virginity to the end, so that body of hers, which was appointed to minister to the word, 
might not know intercourse with a man after the Holy Spirit came into her, and the power from on high overshadowed her. And I think it in harmony with the reason that Jesus was the first fruit among men of the purity which consists in perpetual chastity, and Mary was among women, for it were not for it were not pious to ascribe to any other than her the first fruit of virginity. In the three hundreds, Saint Ephanius wrote, Eve was called the mother of the living. After the fall, this title was given to her. It is, the whole race of man upon earth was born from Eve. But, in reality, it is from Mary, the life was truly born to the world, so that by giving birth to the living one, Mary became the mother of all the living. So, we can see from very early on in Christianity before the Catholic Church even assembled the books of the New Testament and established the canon of Scripture for the whole Bible, the understanding that Mary was a perpetual virgin was already well established. And yes, there were those that disputed it, but the Church continued to teach that Mary was a perpetual virgin. This was not some new thing made up in the Middle Ages. The new Protestant interpretation of the Bible is the new tradition. The Catholic understanding of the Bible predates our assembly of the Bible. So our veneration of Mary is deeply rooted in Christianity and not something new that we made up. Jesus' death on the cross and his later resurrection provides sufficient grace for our salvation. Mary provided us with Jesus through God's plan for our salvation. Mary is a co-mediator with our salvation because she gave birth to Jesus, the true mediator for our salvation. Just as we can ask people on earth to pray for us, to God for us, we can also ask Mary to pray to Jesus for us as the queen of mother because she is close to the King Jesus. Mary was assumed into heaven so she could be the queen of the new Messiah, Jesus in heaven. The assumption of Enoch, Elijah, and Mary into heaven occurred only through God's power. Most Christians have no problem with accepting the assumption of Enoch and Elijah because there's good biblical evidence for it. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, we find God taking Enoch away, but it doesn't say into heaven. In Sirach 44, 16 and chapter 49, Verse 14, we find confirmation that he was taken up from the earth. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 adds, so that he should not see death, which allows us to assume he is in heaven. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, we find that Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. This is confirmed in 1 Maccabees, 
chapter 2, verse 58, which adds, Elijah became, because of great zeal for the law, was taken up into heaven. This makes it clear that Elijah is in heaven. And for our Protestant brothers and sisters that are missing seven books from their Bible, uh, they don't have the verses about Enoch in Sirach, and they don't have the verse about Elijah in 1 Maccabees because they're missing books from their Bible. The Catholic Church teaches that heaven was not yet open to the saints because Christ had not yet come. But we have good evidence that Enoch and Elijah were in heaven before Christ came. This is not a contradiction because the Catholic Church recognizes that God has laid out a general plan for our salvation. But God is not limited by his plan. He can assume into heaven whom he wants and when he wants. Some Protestant faith traditions limit the possibilities of salvation based on certain verses of the Bible. But the Catholic Church uses the whole Bible and allows for God to work outside of his general plan of salvation. The Assumption of Mary was made a dogma, a required belief, in 1950. But there is biblical evidence for Mary being in heaven. At the end of Revelation chapter 11, we find John being given a vision of heaven. The first thing he sees in the beginning of chapter 12 is the Ark of the Covenant. This is Mary, the Ark of the New Covenant, because she brought the word of flesh from John chapter 1, us the word made flesh from John chapter 1. And she is the Ark of the New because she brought the word of flesh the Word made flesh in John chapter 1. The old ark contained the five books of Moses as the Word of God on parchment. In heaven, John sees a woman clothed with the sun with the moon at her feet and a crown of stars on her head. A real person has a body to hold clothing, feet and a head that can be crowned. The same woman gives birth to the man-child that will rule with a rod of iron. This refers back to Psalm 2, predicting the Messiah that would rule with a rod of iron. Jesus is the predicted Messiah, and his mother is Mary. Some Protestants try to make this woman of Revelation Eve, or the nation of Israel, to avoid saying this woman is Mary. To the extent that both Mary and Jesus are descendants of Eve, and from the nation of Israel, this is true. But Mary is the only woman that gave birth to the Messiah. The nation of Israel, or Eve, did not give birth to the Messiah. This also shows us that Mary is the mother of God. When, Je when Jesus, the pre-existing word of God, became flesh, he came to us through Mary. Jesus' physical existence didn't start until his conception in Mary. He pre-existed before that time with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
as shown to us in John 1.1. Revelation chapter 12 has three persons in it. The man-child who rules with a rod of iron, who is Jesus. The dragon that tries to devour the woman's child, who swept away a third of the stars, one-third of the angels, out of heaven. And that person is Satan, the devil. And the woman, who was Mary, who gave birth to the Messiah, who was later caught up to heaven. The same woman was preserved until her assumption, perhaps after 1260 days, or three and a half years. From early on, it was clear that there were no relics of Mary. We have relics of all the apostles, but we have no true first-class relics of Mary. There was an empty tomb attributed to Mary in Jerusalem, which quickly became a place of pilgrimage. The early Christians would go to visit the tomb of Mary. The history of the Assumption of Mary is recorded as early as 180 AD, when Melito of Sardis wrote a corrective letter about an earlier account of the Assumption of Mary. There is a letter from the churches in Gaul written during the Roman persecution under the emperor Lucius Verus that is quoted by Eusebius in his writing Ecclesiastical History. In the quoted letter, someone from the church in Gaul writes that those in prison who died were filled with God's grace and greeted in heaven by the Virgin Mother, Mary. In 180 AD, Melito of Sardis wrote his letter correcting the teaching on the Assumption of Virgin Mary. The, there was an earlier letter from Lucentius, but it was full of heretical information. The Feast of Memory of Mary is one of the earliest Marian feasts and was celebrated as early as the 300s. In 300 AD, Timothy of Jerusalem wrote, it, therefore, If therefore it might come to pass by the power of your grace, it has appeared right to us, your servants, that as you, having overcome death, do reign in joy, so you should raise up the body of your mother and take her with you, rejoicing into heaven. Then said the Savior, Jesus, be it done according to your will. And this is in his writing, The Passing of the Virgin, chapter 16, verses 2 through 17. The Eastern Orthodox and Catholic churches celebrate the Feast of the Dormition of the Mother of God. Dormition means falling asleep and refers to Mary's death. Art in the Western Church usually depicts the assumption with Mary going up to heaven while still alive, although there are a few pieces that show her funeral. Ultimately, whether or not she was alive at the time or not is unimportant. We only need to know that she, she was assumed body and soul into heaven. The Assumption of Mary is recorded as a fact believed in 451 A.D., at the Council of Chalcedon. There, the two consubstantial natures of Christ were declared dogma. 
the Roman emperor asks for a relic of Mary to add to his collection of apostles and saint relics. Saint Juvenal, who was at the council, explained to him that we have no true relics of Mary because she was assumed into heaven. At the earlier Council of Ephesus, Mary was universally recognized as the mother of God to confirm that Jesus was both God and man, not God in a man's body. In the book, of Rev in the book Heaven is for Real, Colton, who was the son of a Wesleyan minister, reported that he saw Mary in heaven. Colton, at four years old, was definitely not predisposed to be looking for Mary in heaven, but he saw her praying before Jesus. It is in the epilogue of the book, and I would highly recommend that you read the book Heaven is for Real. A four-year-old son of a Wesleyan minister saw Mary in heaven is great confirmation that we do have a correct teaching about Mary. The assumption of Mary predates the, the assembly of the Bible and is more than 1,000 years older than the new Protestant faith tradition. It is logical to think of Mary being the Queen of Heaven when you consider that Jesus is the Messiah that sits on the throne of David in heaven. David's son, Solomon, had his mother, who was also David's wife, as queen, because Solomon had so many wives. The Jewish kings after Solomon carried on the tradition for hundreds of years afterward. Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, would bring petitions from his family and others to Solomon. Jesus, sitting on the throne of David in heaven, can be expected to have the same arrangement by having his mother as queen. So that's why we recognize Mary as the queen of heaven, the mother of God, because it's all connected back to Jesus. Again, everything the Catholic Church teaches about Mary is because of what we teach about Jesus. It's not some new devotion made up later on. Although there have been developments in devotions, because there's the Catholic Church offers many different ways to connect to God. A little more background on uh, David, Bathsheba, and Solomon, in case you're not that familiar with the Old Testament, is that David had an affair with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, and then he had Uriah killed in battle. And his son Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, since he could not have pick one of those women to be his queen, he chose his mother, who was Bathsheba. And that tradition was carried on in the Jewish kingdom, well, the Israelite kingdom after that. Even after the northern kingdom separated from the southern kingdom, even the northern kings continued to follow the tradition of having the mother of the king as the queen mother. Because at that time, the king would have many wives. But 
the king only has one mother and Jesus only has one mother. It's not the nation of Israel. It is Mary. Now we'll talk a little bit about the Hail Mary prayer. The Hail Mary prayer comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Linguists propose the original language of this writing was in Aramaic. If it is back translated from the original Greek of Luke's writing into Aramaic, it has a poetic meter used to aid in memorization. You have to remember that Luke's gospel was not written until decades after Jesus ascended into heaven. And Luke tells us that he goes around and collects the narratives about Christianity from many different people and then assembles them into a logical and historically laid out book. The original Greek from Luke for Hail Mary is Cherry Kerikotomene. Jerome translated it into Latin as Ave Gratia Plena, Hail Full of Grace. The Hail Mary is from the Bible. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. That's in Luke chapter 1, verse 28. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. That's in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Hail Mary, mother of God. We find that in Luke chapter 1, verse 43, where Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my Lord. And the Lord that she's referring to is God. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death, like Mary did at Jesus' death, as recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 25. The church honors Mary this way to fulfill God's promise to her in Luke chapter 1, verse 48. All generations shall call me blessed. So, again, the Hail Mary prayer comes to us from parts of the Bible all pieced together. As early as 1030 AD, the greeting of Elizabeth was added to the greeting of the angel Gabriel to Mary. This formed the first part of the Hail Mary prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Abbot Baldwin, a Cistercian monk, who was made Archbishop of Canterbury in 1184, wrote, Before this date, a sort of paraphrase of the Ave Maria in which he says, To this salutation of the angel, by which we daily greet the Most Blessed Virgin, with such great devotion as we may, we are accustomed to add the words, The blessed is the fruit of thy womb, oh, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. By which clause Mary by which clause Elizabeth at a later time, on hearing the Virgin's salutation to her, pleaded, as it were, the angel's words, saying, Blessed are thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Around eleven ninety six AD there was a synodal decree from Eudes de Sully, Bishop of Paris. 
and joining upon the clergy to see that the salutation of the Blessed Virgin Mary was familiarly known to their flocks, as well as the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and after this date, similar enactments became frequent in every part of the world, beginning in England with the Synod of Durham in 1217. In 1214, the Dominicans started using the first part of Luke chapter 1 and their praying of the rosary, as it was revealed to St. Dominic. The addition of the word Jesus was added in 1261 to the end. It was usually written in the 15th century as Jesus Christus, Amen, by the Franciscans. In the 1300s, the prayer was extended with O Virgin Benedetta Sempre tu ora per nous et Dio che si perdone e diache grazia e viver se quage chil parasito al nostro fin si doni. That's in Latin, and so the English is O Blessed Virgin. Pray to God for us that he may pardon us and forgive and give us grace to live here below that he may reward us with paradise at our death. And this was added by the Jesuits. The current versions of the Hail Mary prayer appear in writings from between 1493 and 1519 with slight variations. The current version was written in the Catechism of the Council of Trent and made official when written in the Roman Breviary of 1568. The phrase at the beginning was originally, Our Lord is with thee, and later changed to, The Lord is with thee, around 1900. In Ireland, the general custom was to end the Hail Mary with the part where it says Jesus, as in like, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Then the part, Holy Mary, Mother of God, later of pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, not used by the Irish until around the year 1900. Now we'll cover a little bit about the history of the rosary. The monks used to memorize and recite all 150 psalms using a chord with 150 knots. This recitation of the 150 psalms was called the Psalter. Peasants used to imitate this by reciting 150 Our Father prayers in a devotion called the Paternoster. The Hail Mary prayer was substituted to create Our Lady's Psalter, now known as the Rosary. The Rosary is a Bible study on a chain which allows a person to reflect on 20 events in the life of Christ. It starts with the Apostles' Creed reminding us of the faith of the first Christians. The rosary includes the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of each event reflection, commonly, commonly referred to as a mystery. Each mystery is 
concluded with a prayer that offers glory to the Trinity. The 10 Hail Mary prayers act as a timer, regulating how long we reflect on that event in Christ's life. The prayer is also a petition to Jesus through his mother for whatever we ask for. This tradition comes from the Jewish practice of offering petitions to the king on the throne of David through his mother, the queen, as shown in 1 Kings chapter 2. The five joyful mysteries are the Annunciation, the Visitation, the Nativity, the Presentation, and the Finding in the Temple. The five sorrowful mysteries are Agony in the Garden, Scourging at the Pillar, Crowning with Thorns, Carrying the Cross, the Crucifixion, the five glorious mysteries are the resurrection, the ascension, the descent of the Holy Spirit on the apostles, the assumption of Mary into heaven, and the coronation of Mary as Queen of Heaven. Pope John II gave us, oh, that's Saint Pope John II, John Paul II, <laughs> let me get that again, Pope Saint Pope John Paul II gave us the five mysteries of light. And these are kind of five more additions to the rosary. And they are the bat of Jesus, the wedding at Cana, the proclaiming of the kingdom, the transfiguration, and the Eucharist. The rosary is a Bible study on a chain of beads guiding us to think about 20 events in the life of Jesus. The prayers come from the Bible, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Rosary is our weapon against Satan, like David's sling, which he defeated Goliath with, and the five decades are like the five stones that David took from the stream. Catholics are not required to pray the Rosary, but most find it to be helpful and a way to pray and reflect on the life of Christ. The rosary prayers can be offered to Jesus for the intention of one person or many people. It is prayed like an act of love, and so the more intentions, the greater the love. God may answer our questions with yes, no, or wait for a better plan. If you'd like to a copy of the show notes for today's show, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. And if you'd like me to speak at your parish, you can contact me there also. Thanks for tuning in. Bye for now.